Everyone here at FX Medicine thanks you, our valued listeners, for your ongoing interest and support. The FX Medicine website is our reservoir for educational articles, current research and infographics, as well as comprehensive podcast notes and additional resources. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter so you can get updates and alerts for podcasts, research articles and industry events and information. Come and be a part of the community at fxmedicine.com.au. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Kate Smythe, who developed her passion for natural medicine during her career as an elite endurance athlete competing in the Women's Marathon for Australia at the Olympic and Commonwealth Games and becoming one of the all-time fastest women in Australia with a personal best time of 2 hours 20 minutes. Her journey was not without challenges, and she required the assistance of many holistic health practitioners from around the world to overcome her own health challenges and to progress from fun runner to Olympian in just eight years. During her sporting career, Kate identified the need for a holistic service tailored to the unique requirements for athletes and set about creating an innovative sports naturopathy service. Kate, welcome to FX Medicine. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for asking, Andrew. Thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. Before we get into our topic of the day, anemia in elite athletes or athletes, can we go back a little bit into your history? Because it's actually quite amazing. You went from a fun runner to an Olympian in just eight years. You weren't groomed for this. How the heck did you accomplish that? With um, with uh, with a lot of um, stupidity or dogheadedness, I'd say most people would say. But um, my journey really started when I'd been travelling overseas and eating way too many pastries and carbs in Italy, and um, literally put on about twenty kilos. And when I came back to Australia, I felt very uncomfortable in my own body, and I decided I wanted to get fit again. I'm, I'd always loved my sport ever since I was um, a youngster and I'd always done lots of different sports, team sports and running and a whole range of things. But I was definitely not, you know, a junior superstar or anything like that. And I just decided that I wanted to lose a bit of weight and I set myself two targets um, for the year ahead. One of them was to finish a marathon without walking. I didn't care how long it took me. And the other one was to overcome my fear of heights. Right. <laughs> and with that one, I did a bungee jump um, 110 metres, and that definitely overcame my fear of heights. So um, now I love heights. But uh, the marathon um, journey really started when I ran Canberra for the first time. Mm. And I did finish, and uh, I did it without walking, and I felt like... I really loved it. I loved yeah. the experience. I loved the atmosphere of running. I loved everyone, the camaraderie. And at the end, um, Robert DiCostello was there as the spokesperson, and he was just signing autographs. And I went up to Deeks and I said, oh, 
I've just finished my first marathon. I'd really um, like to know how do I, how do you become a good marathoner? Like it seems like a lot of hard work. And he said, well, probably good to actually train properly, get a coach, um, and you know just take it you know one step at a time, literally. Because at that stage, I really didn't even. I didn't have the gear, like I didn't even have a pair of running shorts, I borrowed my brother's boxes, I I had no idea and I literally, I didn't run more than 30 kilometres in an entire week when a marathon's 42 kilometres in one city. Hit, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was so underprepared, but I loved it. And I did go back to Melbourne and uh, started to train with the group and, and they the coach just made it so much fun that I wanted to go for the social aspect more than anything else. And the fitness was, you know, absolute bonus. And I just started to really enjoy it. And I started to gradually get faster and faster. But it wasn't really until the um, Olympics that in Sydney yep. that my Olympic dream was born. And that really happened because I was sitting in the stadium just as a spectator and I watched the women come in um, from all different countries. And Naoko Takahashi uh, won that year in, I think, two hours, 24 minutes from Japan. And she was just the most beautiful, gracious. Uh, she was like my ideal um, winner or someone, you know, a, a sports person that, I could really look up to. Yeah. And she totally revolutionized women's running in Japan. It has been such a male-dominant sport. Ah. And she changed so many things for her own country women, but for women all around the world. And as I sat there and I watched her coming to the stadium and cross the line, the hair literally stood up on the back of my neck. And it was like a light bulb just went off in my head. And it was like, that's your path. That's what you've got to do. I didn't, you know, I didn't have any of the background to say it was possible, but in my heart, I just went, that's it. That's, that's it. <laughs> um, and so from that moment onwards, that was in 2000, and then I ran in the Olympics in 2008. That journey of eight years was the most incredible journey and life experience that I could have ever imagined. Mm. The people that I met, the countries that I traveled to, the competitions that I went in, the learning experiences about myself, the inner strengths that you develop, the mindset, the learning from a health perspective, because it was definitely not smooth sailing for me by any means. Right. Um, and by also developing, I guess, the the... I don't know whether it was courage or out of desperation, that I started to look outside mainstream sports medicine for answers and for support that could make me a better balanced athlete and to overcome some of the health challenges that I had, you know, personally along the way. Now, you were also ex exposed to international coaches as well. Yes, I was coached by a, um, a coach based in New Zealand. So the training method was quite different under the Lydiard or New Zealand-based system to the Australian system. Right. Yeah. So I tried a number of different things um, before, you know, and I don't think any there's a right or wrong way of doing it. It was just I like to experiment and 
use myself as a guinea pig to see whether, you know, I could get the edge and get the most out of myself. Now, if you weren't part of the Australian Institute of Sport, like a, a funded mm. body, how did you fund this all yourself? All myself, yes. I worked full-time for the majority of my career for the first six years, um, and I used to just save up all my annual leave and save up my money to fund wow. my sport. And um, that that was just the only pathway that was open to me because I was in my late 20s, early 30s, when I started to run well. And by then I was deemed, I wasn't deemed as development material, so I didn't qualify for anything. I applied six years in a straight six years straight mm. to some institutes and I got knockbacks every single time. Right. Um, even though I was progressing, it, it, it's just a bit of a framework that a lot of um, our institutes work through. Mm-hmm. And um, so I had, to, I had to really learn for myself and I had to pull the team together of healthcare practitioners and coaches and um, everybody else that you need to keep you grounded and balanced. I, need, I had to handpick all of them to come in and form my own team. Now, tell us a little bit about your exposure. I, th- I think it was, was it high-altitude exposure in America mm. and you experienced mm-hmm. a health issue because that's important to what we'll be discussing today. Yeah, sure. So I used to go to um, Boulder in Colorado and I used to go there for our winters, bear summers, that used to prepare me usually for an October race in either Europe or America. And uh, so I was at high altitude. I used to fly into Denver, which was already a mile high. And then I used to go further up into the Rockies to do um, additional training up there. So I was exposed to hypoxia. Um, We do have a quasi form of altitude training up at Falls Creek that we do um, generally in runners do or endurance runners do if they're Australian based over summer. But that's not true altitude. It doesn't really I tested, you know, before and after my hematocrit and it really didn't change. So it wasn't true altitude training. Um, but I often I certainly did experience um, the pros and cons of doing that in terms of too little or more importantly too much and not being prepared for that mm-hmm. in terms of um, what can happen if you overtrain and if you're not, you know, prepared and balanced, certainly from an iron storage perspective, you can bury yourself fairly easily as well. Right. Um, yeah. But you also suffered some issues as well. Health issues, absolutely. <laughs> so, um I did a stint down at the AIS where I was invited to be a um, subject on a on a study in the altitude chamber. So it saved me having to go overseas yeah. that time. Yeah. And um, one morning the researchers came to me and said, are you drinking? And I said, no, absolutely not. And they said, well, your liver enzyme levels are through the roof. Um, there's something, you know, you're not well. Um, you need to go home. And so my... My arrangement there was promptly terminated. Um, I had to go back home to Melbourne and I had to find out what was going on because you just get, you really get so used to being tired when you're running up to 200 kilometers a week as well as extra training sessions. You just, you're used to that tiredness and fatigue. So I, I just couldn't really pinpoint um, what was going on and I went to quite a few. Uh, mainstream practitioners and sports medicine practitioners and 
they could tell there was a bit of information, but I really, really couldn't pinpoint exactly what was going on. And I was getting quite desperate um, because I really wanted to race again. I had another event planned for later on in the year. And uh, that's when I decided to seek some help from an integrated GP who also practiced um, naturopathy. Yeah. And it was through through his investigations that were um, very thorough that we um, identified that I did have celiacs, I did have um, insulin resistance, I did have liver damage and, and very high enzymes there because I was given an anti-inflammatory drug that yeah. was withdrawn from the marketplace. Did you have diagnosed non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, NAFLD? No, I didn't have that, and and I don't think that was possibly really suspected just because uh, there's not much fat in a insurance <laughs> athlete anyway. We're not atypical. Right. Um, but, but it was definitely, yep, the liver. There's something not right with the liver. The liver. Let's just check. But, um, yeah, it became apparent once, you know, my history was taken down in terms of, ah, uh, that that particular drug has just been withdrawn yes. for a whole range of complications. So as soon as I came off that, it, you know, things tended to settle down a bit. Kate, just going back to your early time, just for a second, in your younger years, were you healthy and well and had heaps of energy back then? You had no issues with sports and and normal periods, for instance, and all of that sort of thing? Uh, when I was younger, I guess... Um, I certainly had very light periods because I was very active and I did play lots and lots of different sports. Um, I had more totally unrelated symptoms. I had, um, you know, bronchial asthma was my greatest challenge. Right. And random things, you know, ovarian cysts and just random things, not so much gut gut-related issues or um, anemia by any means. No skin itching um, or anything like that? or No, nothing. Nothing that would have given any GP in, in your earlier years a signal to go, hmm, we might investigate celiac disease? No. Okay, so forgive me. So we've gone back in history and back to the future. Now we're at the <laughs> stage where you've been diagnosed with celiac. How did that translate with the AIS? Was that just too late? Uh, yes, by then I was discharged from the study. So um, I wasn't on a scholarship at the AIS. I was literally a lab rat for them. Right. So, um, yeah, so it didn't really um, change anything there. It just meant for me that, um, in my mind, um, that a holistic approach was just what I wanted and needed to embrace so that I could get back to... Um, being able to be within stone's throw of qualifying for the Olympics. Because at that stage, uh, I was way off qualifying, way off qualifying. And I only had six-month window Whoa. before um, qualification would cut would be, cut you off. know, ended. Yeah. yeah. I only had this short window of qualification. And um, so I went through literally a three months of heavy detox um, uh, not heavy as insulation detox, it was heavy as in I, I only ate whole foods. I didn't have anything out of a packet, absolutely. Um, you know, it was a really a great diet, but, um, you know, it was back to basics um, yeah. for three months and I could only walk. I wasn't allowed to run. Right. And then, so that was about eight, uh, that was about August, September when that started, that process, and then by December I was allowed to start jogging again. And I um, 
I couldn't get my money back on the entry that I had for a race in Germany. So I decided to still go to Europe and go on a get well holiday. So I went on the get well holiday and just started training very slowly and gently again. And then um, January, I rebounded so well. Once I was nutritionally repleted, um, I was balanced, I was healthy, I was sleeping well, I was recovering well, um, I wasn't catabolic anymore, you know, all those things that can be reversed through good <laughs> nutrition and yeah. a lot of patience um, to the point where in April I went over to Japan to run my last chance to qualify for the Olympics and I had to, I literally had to blow the qualifying time out of the water for me to get picked because the race before that was a disaster in the Commonwealth Games where I'd collapsed from heat stroke. And you often only get selected based on your past performances and time. I had poor past performance and I was not even within the qualifying time. I had to really give it everything. And that race in Japan was just, it was incredible because I'd done so much work when I was lying on my bed, not able to run. I did so much work on my mindset, on visualization, on the whole feeling and journey of what a beautiful race would be like. Mm. But on race day, it unfolded. It unfolded just that way I dreamt it would, like literally. That is such a powerful message. It was amazing. It It just showed me, oh, my goodness, this is possible because... I had to run under um, 2.32, and at the time, I'd only run over 2.33, um, and I I knew I had to chunk it up, as in I had to really go for broke and, you know, really run the best time that I possibly could, and I thought 2.28 was about right, and I stuck 2.28, I wrote it down, and I stuck it on everything. I stuck it on my toilet. I stuck it on my driver's wheel. I had it in my diary. On my watch, we'd go off at 2.28 in the afternoon, like for 21 days before the race, and I meditated on 2.28, and I used to just go through the whole visualization of crossing under line. You know what happened? When I went into that stadium in Japan, I looked up, and it was 2.28. Wow. And I'd ended up qualifying as the fastest female runner that year in 2008. So wow. they had to take me on the team. <laughs> Just a quick question before we get into our subject, which is anemia. And I just want to ask about what testing was done by your integrative GP before and after? What sort of tests were were looked at apart from the standard celiac test? Look, he ran a long time ago now to remember all the tests, but he did run uh, just a lot, a lot of tests. Right. Um, yeah, and, it, you know, of course he did the general um, pathology screening, but he went the extra step. You know, he looked at my insulin. He looked at um, the broader markers of things. I didn't do a stool test. I did do a serology test. I did do um, a bowel biopsy. Yep. Um, we... I don't... I don't... No, we didn't even do the HLA. We didn't do the genetic testing. Um but that was, you know, the serology was so off the scale along with the liver as well as the bowel biopsy. That was, you know, pretty conclusive. So You were also shown to be iron deficient at the beginning. So did that raise during your treatment 
Yes, totally, because we work through um, information as well. Um, and, yes, absolutely. But up until that point in time, I had had, I think I've lost count, how many iron infusions. It was just the standard, oh, she's getting low, we'll give another iron infusion. This is not through the integrated, this is the other pathway. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I would have multiple iron infusions even in a year just to keep me at decent levels. And right. not once was it suspected that I would have celiac. Yeah. Now, why is iron deficiency anemia so prevalent in athletes, not just of celiac but all athletes? Yeah, and you know, that's a great question and it's a combination of factors. There is definitely a prevalence um, for female athletes or athletes in general to be switching to more plant-based. So the intake side is definitely dropping, but the demand for athletes, I don't think probably as well recognised as it could be, in that, you know, athletes can, depending on their training, can need up to 70% higher than what a normal RDI is for general population. Like, they need a lot more. And then there's a whole lot of other factors. There's things like the hemolytic breakdown, both through foot strike, but we kind of know now that that's more about exertion, hemolysis, Mm. because we see it also in non-weight-bearing sports, you know, things like rowing and weightlifting and swimming. And it's more to do with the compression of the blood vessels, um, you know, through the muscle contraction. So a physical stressor on the red blood cells. Yes, yes. Yes, but it, it, we used to think heel strike was a big deal in terms of blood loss in athletes. We now know, you know, it's not a huge contributor, but it is a contributor of some kind because we also know that now there's a mechanism for recycling. Once things are broken down, our body has a great way of capturing all that excess, you know, iron and recycling it. So, um, yes, we're destroying the red blood cells, but we're not necessarily always losing the iron. Upon heel strike... Heel strike, physical heel strike, bashing on the ground. Yes, it breaks it up. Mechanical breakdown. So therefore, even running style could affect your hemodynamics? Yes, absolutely. And also, um, you know, if runners are running in cities and they're running a lot on cement and very hard surfaces, that will increase the likelihood of that happening. Yeah. Yeah. But as I said, like the overall impact um, it's there, but it's not the major contributing thing. One of the big losses that we find um, is hematuria. Um, it's actually through, you know, the kidneys um, because there's actually, um, when skeletal muscles are really engaged, mm. there's more vasoconstriction of the renal arteries. So there's a bit of nephron damage that occurs just microly. Um, and then there's also the glomular capillaries that expand and they allow, you know, the red blood cells to pass through. And you've also got to remember in sports when athletes are really pushing themselves and there's a lot more lactic acidosis, um, even just transient post-exercise, that, that that will also increase the um, permeability, glomular permeability. Yeah, yeah. So often after races or heavy sessions, um, athletes will ha- could have um, rusty urine. That's a classic case you know, post-marathon, rusty urine. And, and it resolves after a couple of days. So it is transient. But if athletes are doing back-to-back endurance, you know, hours and hours, um, you know, it accumulates, definitely accumulates. The other thing that we find um, 
is gastrointestinal bleeding, and it may be a cult, but 20% of athletes and 30% of marathoners, um, especially the endurance, um, you know, the, the ultra marathoners, have that micro trauma to the GIT lining. Um, and we've also got, you know, the sympathetic nervous system is so engaged or heightened when people are doing physical activity, um, you know, at a high level that, you know, that there's the um, ischemic damage to um, to the lining. And, you know, you've also got to think of there's also, you know, the sequel um, slap syndrome. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. But no. it's just physical mechanical trauma. Right. Um, due to acceleration and deceleration. So you may see that in players, um, like team players that are football players and um, soccer players and, you know, they're changing direction, basketball, netball. Netball. Um, that's, you know, that's also at play there. And right. then we lose it through sweating um, as well. That's, that's definitely a player. Um, altitude training, as we've touched on before, um, you know, that definitely increases the demand for iron. Uh, athletes, because of that sympathetic dominance um, and cortisol going up, um, we've got the response on reduced stomach acid, so that's going to impact on the um, absorption, obviously. And then you've got the response where there's an acute inflammatory response post-exercise. And... Um, that's really driven through, you know, the um, cytokines, interleukin-6 and tumor necrosis factor, and that really um, drives or changes um, hepcidin. So, and that tends to happen when athletes are exercising at 65% of VO2 max, so the upper end, yeah. you know, of thresholds. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and it reaches maximum levels when you sort of get up to the 90, 95%. So race, race, race ends, you yeah. get more of that, yeah, response. We've seen in a few marathons, particularly on a hot day, that sort of thing, but not just that, the mechanisms by which athletes suffer rhabdomyolysis. You know, you've got mm -hmm. nephron damage, you've got um, direct muscle damage from the muscle working during the load, but also the pounding of the heel, the tension around the, the renal arteries. That's amazing. Mm, and then you, you, you think of um, senior athletes, our lovely master's athletes that are still going, mm. um, there is um, increased um, you know, kidney function. Uh, sorry, kidney, kidney issues. Kidney issues, yes. Um, and that, that can also be exacerbated because of long-term use of anti-inflammatories and all the rest of it to keep yes, them going. But, of course. Um, yeah, it definitely does exist. And, you know, um, athletes sometimes in, in some modalities, um, there's a bit of a camel mentality. You know, I'm not going to drink because it looks, you know, I don't want to stop to drink. It chews up time. Oh, okay, right. Um so, you know, you can just imagine the impact on the poor old Yeah, people. absolutely. With regards to athletes who may mm. be at risk of iron deficiency anemia, what are some of the key things that we really need to look out for, the early warning signs? Yeah, and that they look, a lot of them are, are common to the general population, but often athletes will complain that their perceived exertion has changed. So they'll feel normal um, in their day-to-day -day lives, but it's not until they train or race that um, they feel um, they don't have their second gear anymore. 
Um, they'll get more shortness of breath during exercise. So, so basically, their VO2 max is being reduced. Yeah. So they can go for an easy jog. They can go to a, a recovery session, but it's when they push themselves that they'll really notice it. Right. You can definitely see more frequent infections of any kind. Um, and then there's, you know, the general weakness. Um, they'll get uh, possibly more restless legs, poor recovery. Uh, you may get headaches. You will get some that will get cravings for things like ice, but it's very rare that I see that in clinical practice. I see more likely, you know, the um, the low fatigue, you know, the high fatigue, low energy, um, the poor adaptation if they go to altitude, um, the reduced ability to thermoregulate, um, and general a bit more irritability irritable, um, not as motivated, um, a bit teary. Um, Yeah, they're the general things. And often it can creep up. So they can be training really well, really well. And then they'll go out to a major competition and they they just run flat. Right. And they have no understanding of what's just happened to them. And how how would you differentially diagnose that from um, overtraining syndrome? Uh, well, yeah, you really do need to take a good um, history of exactly what their workload has been like and whether they've taken breaks over certain periods of time. And in certain codes of sport, you know, there's a certain level of tolerance. Um, but pathology is obviously <laughs> what, what we look for. Um, but because a lot of, you're right, in that a lot of these signs and symptoms can be, um, you know, a bit of both. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. And you've got the random ones. You know, the, the way I used to always tell that my iron was going down, well, both iron and B12, hmm. was um, my feet used to start stinging. It just hurt. Ah, right. Okay. So this is... I did, and I got that before yeah. I would get the fatigue or the change in heart rate. You know, heart rate tends to go up and the blood pressure tends to go down. So, you know, people, a lot of athletes are addicted to their garments, you know, giving them feedback all the time and they go, oh, I don't feel sick. Why is my heart rate up? And that's another good But are they trained? Sign. Are they trained to look for these symptoms to go, hey, coach, no. listen, look at this? No. Yeah, the coaches would generally, um, if, if a heart rate is elevated, um, they will usually think, oh, that might be more to do with an underlying infection. Yeah. So they'll general run, you know, might suggest they go to their GP or someone for a general blood checkup. And when that comes back negative, they're just thinking, oh, well, maybe you just need a break from training. Right, okay. And yeah. when you're looking for pathology of anemia, don't just do iron, like you were talking about B12 as well. What about things like mm-hmm. ferritin, t- um, total iron binding capacity, things like that? Oh, gosh, yes. I think there's so many um, pathology markers that really give us some good clues both in terms of giving us an idea of the stage of iron deficiency before it hits anemia um, and what else is going on. I mean, just, you know, you think of all the factors that can affect um, hemoglobin alone um, and there's so many things that we, you know, we've got got, um, access to that we can check and we should look at. Um, You know, transferrin, of course, we want to look at that because that's, you know, the carrier, that's the taxi or the tram that's carrying, you know, the iron around. But we've got to also, when we look at the markers, we've kind of got to keep in mind that inflammation response as well. 
And the way that we, or the timing of our testing for athletes um, can be can be a bit tricky. Yeah, very tricky. But um, of course, we'd like to look at ferritin as a, as a storage, um, and it gets it gets um, a little bit interesting. Uh, this is where I think integrated medicine differs in that the general ranges for ferritin are. Um, you know, below 30 and then there's possibly an iron storage issue. But now the research is really showing um, that really athletes really need to be more around 50 to 65. Right. Um, below that, um, performance can be affected ah. and the way they recover can be affected. Um, and some of this evidence, this great evidence, has actually come out of our own AIS down in Canberra. They've done quite a few um studies and the, the body of evidence is definitely um, building um, in terms of optimal um, ferritin for athletes but we've still got a wee way to go in terms of really better understanding that but definitely I see it um, in athletes it's like yeah, the balloon is deflating when it starts going under 50 yeah. but there are anomalies because athletes do adapt and I've had elite athletes that have only had stores of ferritin of 12 and they had still been able to compete at an international level well and wow. felt okay. Wow. Yeah. So it really is individual. Yeah. And I think we absolutely have to take that into account. So definitely looking at ferritin, definitely looking, um, you know, for other signs and symptoms, um, you know, um, red cell distribution width. You know, is it more B12? Is it more iron related? You know, globulin, is that high or low? Because that'll be low along with iron as well. Um, is there any suspicion that there might be parasites? You know, do we need to do gut stool testing? Um, is there any possibility that this person might have high copper for whatever reason? Well, I don't think we can... Just think because they're athletes that it's to do just with their sport because the number of athletes that I have that have got other factors other than their training that's contributing to their iron deficiency is really, really high, really high. They tend to be people as well as athletes. Oh, totally. <laughs> totally. But even, totally. And even, you know, things, you know, we have to check CRP. If you're not checking CRP, um, you know, that's one of the main drivers. You know, we've got to check that and it's got to be in the same blood draw. Right. Um, but even things like vitamin D, you know, and vitamin D is is a tricky one because in really lean, fit athletes, they don't have fat stores. Well, very little. You know, their body fat's quite low. Yeah. So, um, and vitamin D stored in fat as well. So we kind of have to think, okay, and we know that there's, you know, this relationship between vitamin D and iron. They both need each other. You know, they both influence each other. We may think from the immune perspective with vitamin D, but we've also got to just remember that it also has an influence, um, you know, over some of the inflammatory cytokines and hepcidin again. And then you've got to think back the other way in terms of iron helping vitamin D as well, synthesis and conversion because of all those amazing, um, you know, cytokine enzymes, the P450s that are all heme dependent. So yeah. I could go on and on about <laughs> the parameters. But um, What about confounders like those anemias which aren't responsive to iron but are responsive to other things? Yeah. And... This is where we really, as you just 
pointed out before, we absolutely need to look at this um, person in front of us as a human being first and foremost before an athlete because, um, you know, it's so, it, it is really prevalent to see the malabsorption. Um, definitely even just gut inflammation will impact. Um, definitely checking for any intolerances, um, hypochloridria is really prevalent as I touched on before. Um, your B12, your B9, you know, um, B6, they've all got such an influence. Mm. Um, and that if we if we do a complete history and if we do a thorough analysis, especially, you know, gut health especially, there'll be other clues that suggest, oh, there's mucus in the stool and, oh, they may have an itchy backside. I really think we need to do that stool test as well. What research yeah. specifically looks at the needs of female athletes? Yeah, so this um, body of evidence is really growing. Um, there's heaps on sports and there's heaps on the crossover between sports and anemia. You know, 16,000 in there and 4,000 just from articles in terms of publishing within 2015. And we are seeing more um, uh, large analysis coming through. There's a great meta-analysis done in 2014 that was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. That covers 17 studies, um, but Although it wasn't published a specific for females, there was only, I think, two or three of the 17 studies that had males in them. The rest were all females. And that was really looking at, you know, iron needs um, in the female athlete, but also their unique, their unique issues compared to males. Because we didn't even touch on before the fact that, um, you know, heavy menstrual bleeding can actually impact on women as well. And there yeah. was an, another great study that was published in 2016. It was actually conducted on London Marathon participants, and they uh-huh. surveyed um, 1,800 women then. And um, over 35, well, it varied a little bit depending whether they were elite or recreational runners, but over 35% of the marathoners had heavy menstrual bleeding. Right. And 38% of them, of the recreational ones, um, recreational athletes had a history of anemia, but 52% of the elite athletes had a history of anemia. Right. So we're really, you know, I think we are moving in a really positive direction. A lot of the research is coming out of Europe, but our own AIS um, researchers are actually doing some, some really good work here too. And I think we'll probably... As women's um, sport, it has just taken off. Yeah. Um, you know, in all modality, you know, all sporting codes. Um, I think we'll see a lot more, you know, a lot more funding going into into this area, which is really exciting. Absolutely, Kate. We need to talk about chronic consequences of low grade mm. anemia, or you mm. know, just insufficiency of of iron and I guess general nutrition, but, but especially iron in athletes. What are the issues here? What are we running into? Like um, you mm. mentioned before, you know, infections and things like that. Yeah. So are we talking just coughs and colds or more chronic uh, type things? Look, it comes very, in, in very, you know, it can be um, infections in the gut. It can be, um, you know, things like thrush. It can be, you know, upper respiratory. Upper respiratory is probably the more common ones that I personally see in clinical practice, but, um, you know, infections of any kind or and recovery, especially recovery from um, from infection, um, it will just take a lot long, longer because um, a lot of athletes want to jump back 
into training a little bit too hastily yeah. well, <laughs> as well. Um, but we also see things like, you know, longer-term thyroid issues. We can see arrhythmias, you know, um, and then, you know, longer-term um, enlarged heart and, you know, there so are heart. Yeah, and heart complications further down the track. And I think also athletes, as they go into pregnancy, it's a major, you know, um, you know, major issue. Um, and a lot of um, elite athletes like to train through pregnancy. So it's a bit of a, a red light that goes off if a, if a elite athlete says, I want to fall pregnant and I've had a history of anemia. I say, well, we absolutely need to be onto this, you know, yeah. and checking you regularly. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, there's other issues that I touched on with that vitamin D um, link with iron and osteoporosis and bone issues. It's not just about the vitamin D. It's also because of collagen and collagen, um, you know, type 1 collagen, about um, that, that can, constitutes about 90% um, of total bone protein. So, um, and iron's you know, required in terms of its um, enzyme um, activity mm. for that collagen synthesis. So we're affecting it that way as well as, um, you know, through the vitamin D. So when we're looking at treatment options, take us mm. through some of the pros and cons of those available to the athlete, I guess, particularly. Sure. So... so um, We've got supplementation and iron infusions are the most common. Um, and the injections have sort of gone, um, the muscular injections I'm referring to, mm. have kind of gone out of favour favor because of their bruising and, um, you know, a GP needed a special, a bit of a skill to do that with the weave technique. Um, so we're really looking at the two main options now. And... Um, the supplementation, yes, will take possibly um, will will take longer to bring the athletes um, back up, um, their levels back up. But with the right formula, I find that that's you know you you get good compliance and limited side effects with um, the right choice for them in terms of formula. But of course, you can get constipation. Um, that's pretty common on on some formulas. Um, others may in fact get, you know, nausea or even sort of almost gourd-like symptoms, a bit of heartburn and upper gastric discomfort. But mm. I tend to find constipation is the main yep. drawback. And, and the lovely tarry stool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we've got the IV and the IV has become particularly um prevalent and popular, especially for athletes, because they do want to get back out there and recover as quickly as possible. And a lot of them have got timelines. Um, you know, a competition in six weeks, for example, they need to be right for that. So this will raise, obviously, the iron much more quickly. But it does so with yeah. a very large amount of iron going in. So generally we know that... Um, we can take on board about 600 milligrams of maxage iron at once. And we're seeing uh, IVs in a 70 kilogram person, for example, going in up to 2,000 milligrams. Generally, the recommendation is between 500 to 1,000 because really there isn't a huge amount of evidence to go over 1,000. But 
it does happen. Yeah. But I think the issue then is what's happening to that free iron, what's happening, the oxidative stress, and perhaps once or twice, you know, maybe maybe it's transient. But when athletes are having multiple, multiple, multiple um, experiences of iron overload, we have to kind of think of, well, what's the accumulative effect mm. of this? And I think this is where we we could really do with some more research. We know about general iron overload, but we don't really have an a clear idea of, okay, so how many infusions can one person have before they'll have symptoms of, you know, degenerative bone issues? Um, Heart damage, it does, kidney damage, brain it does, damage. <laughs> yes, it damages so many tissues in the body. We've got to think of liver you know, heart. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a forced hemochromatosis. It's it's not hereditary yeah. in this instance. So no yeah. research in athletes at this level. Not in terms of specific number of iron infusions. Um, yeah. Gotcha. But plenty in general on um, female athletes and, and anemia and using IV therapy, it's just there's not, I don't believe that we've got a decent body of evidence to suggest how much is too much. So now that you've got your training behind your belt, what sort of support do you offer your female athletes who you're looking after? Mm, so um, what I try to do is, is work on the underlying cause so that they don't need repetitive yeah. iron infusions. Yeah. I work on sustaining their iron rather than the other, you know, going down the other path. And sure, um, you know, things like N-acetylcysteine and other antioxidants are muted out there. But, um, you know, again, the evidence, there is supportive evidence for that, but just not enough to say you need, you know, this dosage for this kind of level of iron infusion. So um, the way I like to tackle it is to really educate the patient in terms of and not... Um, put them in a situation where they have a dependence on them in the first place. Yeah. You know, solve, solve the underlying driver. Yeah. So when we're dealing with celiacs, I mean, you know, obviously gluten avoidance. Yeah. But what about, you know, once an athlete presents to you with gut issues, uh, you know, they've got a, a precipitously low iron or stuff like that, what sort of support do you engage in to say, okay, we need to heal you first? Do, do you take them through the same sort of journey that you went, you know, you re vastly reduce their exercise down to a minimum, you let their body, you nourish their body back up, you heal the issue that was causing the iron deficiency anemia. Is it the same sort of journey? Um, yes and no. And that totally depends on their time frame. Gotcha. If they're racing at world championship level in six weeks, they will probably need to go through the IV route. Right. But at the same time, we need to start all the foundational stuff. So absolutely gut health has got to be, um, uh, you know, um, number one priority along with supporting their inflammation or dampening that down because there's just systemic inflammation in elite athletes continuously. Um, but there's a lot of other things that we can do to support athletes when while they're in recovery phase if they're not working towards a major event. And it's 
a lot to do with balancing their training load. You never tell an athlete to rest. That is such a dirty word. (laughs) You don't say, you know, sit on the couch and do nothing for eight weeks while they recover. Absolutely no go. (laughs) But So you have to keep them moving. You have to keep their cardiovascular systems um, active and fit so that they can maintain that level um, or will reduce the loss. I would have to say, reduce the losses in that area. But you do need to work with their support networks, work with their coaches and their strength trainers to reduce the load. And generally, I suggest around 40 40 to 50%, depending on how far gone they are. If it's just early stages of iron deficiency, then, you know, drop it back by 30%. But it's also dependent on how they feel. If they're feeling flat and crap, they're just going to lose a whole lot of confidence by training like that. Yeah. But switching them on to other fun activities that are still using their cardiovascular system but isn't so weight-bearing and so taxing on their overall usage of iron anyway or their loss of iron can be really beneficial. Things like if they're a weight-bearing athlete like a runner or a triathlete, for example, getting them in the pool and doing water running, doing a bit more swimming, doing hypoxic work is brilliant for lung function. You know, like what the divers do. Yeah. Um, you can switch that to, you know, get athletes to do that you know, all the time. Even cycling is great because you're not having the same level of force. Um, so definitely reducing the intensity as well. So their sessions come back in length and in intensity. And there's so many other things that you can work on while they're recovering, you know, supporting them with their mental preparation, encouraging them to work on their sympathetic nervous system and rebalancing that with their parasympathetic, you know, core strength and flexibility and um so many things you can do. One last quick question before we go, Kate, and that is mm. um, how do you manage all of this from a naturopathic perspective with regards to um, asada and water? So we, when we're giving supplements to um, athletes, we always need to check. Um, and there are products now that are what we call HASTA tested, which is basically a company, um, an offshoot basically that's independent of asada or water. Um, that will do testing on supplementation. And you need to look under a specific sporting code to see whether a particular supplement is okay. Um, so when I work with elites that I know are under testing, I just check. I always check and I try to source um, products that are through um, approval. Yeah. Or I do it old school and I go through, through absolutely every single ingredient and check it. Right. Um, and I always make sure that they're Australian-based so that we don't have problems with extra sleeping, yeah. you know, in there. <laughs> Kate, thank you so much. There's obviously so much more to cover. Um, thank you so much, though, for taking us through at least some of the issues, particularly your story. I've got to say, you're a bit of a bit of a champion here. You, you've, <laughs> that's no mean feat to come from a fun runner to an Olympian in eight years. Well done to you, and, you. and well done thank to you, you for supporting your patients from your, um, from your journey. So thanks so much for joining us on FX Medicine today. Thanks, Andrew. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you're loving our FX Medicine podcasts, please don't forget to share us with your colleagues, family and friends.